Yeah, my welcome to you all today. I want to invite you to turn to the book of Exodus, and we're going to be giving our attention to Exodus chapter 33. Perhaps I shouldn't assume that this is true for everyone, (laughs) but for some, and perhaps many, I expect you know what it's like to find yourself tripping over the same relational stumbling blocks again and again and again. This is especially true in a marriage when the same old annoyance or the same irritating habit The same trigger sets off the same old offense. And when that happens, relational, emotional muscle memory kicks in, resulting in the same old response, and then the same old discouraging reality strikes. And here we are again. Will we ever get beyond this? Will we ever get better? Will we ever make progress? Will there ever be a day when it will no longer be necessary to take a a relational mulligan when we won't need to back up and start all over again? Of course, most of you probably can't relate to that. Last week, we left off with the Israelites under God's corrective discipline. On account of their sin, on account of their blatant high-handed sin, Exodus chapter 32 ends on a note of, of great tension and gloom. Exodus chapter 32 verse 35 says, Then the Lord sent a plague on the people because they made the calf, the one that Aaron made. From day one, this marriage between God and Israel has been one step forward and sometimes it seems two steps backward. It's been rocky, to say the least, and now here at Exodus 33, it feels like things are at the breaking point. That the entire aim and purpose of God in the Exodus is to make them and to take them as a people for his own so that he might dwell with them. And then this, then this sin fest of Exodus 32. Is this it? Is this marriage over before they'd even built the house? That's the context that we find ourselves looking in on at the outset of Exodus chapter 33. Now, just before we read this text, let me say that the, the purpose of this passage is to engender hope, hope for all who are discouraged and ashamed by their own disheartening unfaithfulness in relation to God. It could seem like a broken record, just skipping, repeating, here I am again at this same place. It seems like I can't get beyond. But our hope is that our God, the God we are worshiping today, is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. We, we, we just simply cannot hear that enough. So if you find yourself this morning aware 
that in relation to God, you're in need of a fresh start, in need of a relational reset. My prayer is that God, God the Holy Spirit might encourage you and assure you that God is eager and welcoming and prepared to take you in His arms, as it were. And so I want to invite you, if you're able, to please stand and follow along as I read Exodus chapter 33. I'm going to read the whole chapter, verses 1 through 23. The word of the Lord. The Lord said to Moses, depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt, to the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, To your offspring I will give it. I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Beresites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Go up to the land flowing with milk and honey. But I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, For you are a stiff-necked people. When the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned. And no one put on his ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, say to the people of Israel, you're a stiff-necked people. If for a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. So now take off your ornaments that I may know what to do with you. And therefore the people of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Horeb onward. Now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, far off from the camp, and he called it the tent of meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. Whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people would rise up and each would stand at his tent door and and watch Moses until he had gone into the tent. And when Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent and the Lord would speak with Moses. And when all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, All the people would rise up and worship, each at his tent door. And thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. When Moses turned again into the camp, his assistant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. Moses said to the Lord, See, you... You say to me, bring up this people, but you've not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you've found favor in my sight. Now therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider too that this nation is your people. And he said, my presence will go with you, 
and I will give you rest. And he said to him, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken, I will do, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Moses said, please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But, he said, you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock and while my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. It's the holy word of God. Let's pray. We're depending on you, Lord, to do what we cannot do, and that is to behold glory, to, to see and hear and know wisdom from above and be appropriately affected. The capacity, the ability to do that is a gift from you, and we're looking to you for it. Open the eyes of our hearts that we might behold wondrous things in your word as you have spoken to us through your servant, Moses. Lord, we pray these things in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. You may be seated. Well, my outline includes four points. A severe mercy, a hopeful response, a faithful friend, and an audacious request. Severe mercy, hopeful response, a faithful friend, and an audacious request. First, severe mercy. Exodus 33 begins with some good news and some bad news. Verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt, to the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, to your offspring I will give it. That's, that is good news. God's first words following a, a, a more than likely deadly 
and more than likely prolonged plague are go up to the land that I promised. <laughs> Verse 2. I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Go up to the land flowing with milk and honey. That is amazing news. God promises safe passage into the promised land. But it is also profoundly painful news. Or in verse 3 it says, But I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way. For you are a stiff-necked people. Land? Yes. Divine presence in their midst? No. No tabernacle. No more of God's nearness. Everything's different now. Everything has changed because of their sin. They forfeited God's personal presence. And now all they have is an angel. Phil Riken writes, Although the Israelites were still going to the promised land, God had canceled his reservation. Still, this... <laughs> This severe expression of discipline is, is simultaneously an expression of mercy. Because if God had remained with them, they would be no more. Verse 5, say to the people of Israel. And just, just notice that God refers to them here as the people, not my people. Say to the people of Israel, you are a stiff-necked people. If for a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. That is severe mercy. If God went with them and they triggered his wrath, which they inevitably would, he would consume them. And therefore, not accompanying them into the promised land is actually an expression of God's kindness to them. But despite this promise of safe passage and this fulfillment of the promised land, the Israelites, well, they, they rightly took this news very hard. Verse 4, when the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned and no one put on his ornaments, which is a good thing. It's, it is a fitting response, an appropriate response, and therefore it is a, and this is the second point, a hopeful response. They mourned, grieving this loss is, it's the right thing to do. And because their outward appearance should reflect their internal Affection and mourning and grief, obeying God's command to remove their ornaments is yet a further step in the right direction. In verse 5, God says, now take off your ornaments that, that I may know what to do with you. Therefore, the people of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Horeb onward. In, in Exodus chapter 32, we, 
We know that the Israelites had, well, they had contributed at least some of their bling to make this object of worship. And now they're removing whatever bling remained in sorrowful remorse and and in mourning and in removing their articles of adornment. They're showing, they're demonstrating that their repentance is is sincere. This is such a genuine thing that they're doing. They weren't interested in the promised land without the God who had so graciously rescued them and promised the land to them. They apparently had come to their senses and realized that they were that, that being personally accompanied by an angel it was not a satisfying substitute to God himself. It's a significant thing when anyone actually and sincerely wants God himself and not just God's gifts. When I was a tender-hearted 10-year-old, the notion of going to hell frightened me. I still remember the night when I was watching, listening to Billy Graham preach on television. It, it, I, hell was real, and I was going there, and that scared, scared me religious. But, loved ones, listen, it, it does not, this is important, it doesn't require new birth to desire heaven over hell. Who wouldn't? It doesn't require new birth or regeneration to prefer, prefer peace over pain. But it does require regeneration. It does require being made new to desire God himself over anything else. And so God tests their sincerity. Take off your adornments that I may know what to do with you. One might conclude that God isn't quite sure what to do next. That would be a wrong conclusion. The author's intent is not to teach that God doesn't, doesn't have a plan here or that God might be weighing his next move or, or that God's actions are in some way ultimately dependent on what people do. Not at all. God knows the end from the beginning. Rather, the author intentionally leaves us hanging in suspense in order to direct our attention to the heart, a true heart, of true friendship with God. So the third observation is what we see as the exhibit of this faithful friend. Exodus chapter 33, verses 7 through 11, it introduces the, the existence of a tent. And make no mistake, this is a different tent than the tabernacle which was described in chapters 25 to 31. It took, took a lot of chapters to describe that tent. And, and this is not 
anything like that. And we are meant to understand that it is that sin fest that took place back in Exodus 32 that prompted the making of this particular tent. In other words, the plans that God had given for the tabernacle, those elaborate, specific, particular plans for this place to God, for God to dwell among his people, those plans have been scrapped. The plans for that tent have apparently now been replaced by this tent. But especially notice the location of this tent. Verse 7 says, Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside, outside the camp, far off from the camp. Verse 8, outside the camp. So, this little, this little pup tent and its location is intended to be a visual reminder to the people that God had distanced himself from the people. God was not dwelling with them in the tabernacle. And it's because of their sin. And if anybody wanted to inquire of the Lord, they'd have to take this hike, this jaunt, this little long jaunt. I'm sure if you're going to truck your way out of, of a camp that was set up for two, whatever, three million people outside the camp to Moses' little tent where every step you took was a reminder that God was now far off on account of your sin. But even though God had so distanced himself from the people, he'd not abandoned them. Whenever Moses, God's appointed mediator, entered that, that little pup tent, the people watched as this, this visible manifestation of God's glory would come down. And when, and when the people saw this, I mean, just try to imagine this spectacular pillar of cloud. You know, you've seen those, you've seen those cumulus, billowing, awesome clouds. Just, imagine it descending on Moses' little tent. And they would stand at the, the, their own tent doors. And they, what else could they do but worship in awe and wonder? And inside Moses' little tent was something even more spectacular was happening. If that pillar of cloud descending was spectacular... God himself communicating with Moses personally and intimately would have been even more spectacular. According to verse 11, God spoke to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. Now, don't misunderstand. This face to face, it doesn't mean God, Moses could see God because verse 20 says that no no. Mortal human can see God's face and live. Rather, face to face in verse 11 is it's a figure of speech describing the kind of access that Moses had to God. The way they could relate to one another. Moses and God were, they were close. 
and the description of the intimate relationship that Moses had with Moses, it sets the stage for what then happens in verses 12 to 23, namely, Moses' audacious request. Beginning in verse 12, we are taken inside Moses' little tent, and we are given the, the privilege to eavesdrop on this conversation, on this prayer. And what we hear, what we hear is the passionate disposition of Moses' heart. Listen in. We, we get to listen in. Verse 12, Moses said to the Lord, see, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. You, you, you've said, I know you by name, and you also found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, if I have found favor, favor in your sight. Please show me now your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. And consider too that this nation is your people. Moses has this daunting responsibility of leading two million plus people. The, the weight of that, the, the incredible weight of that rests on Moses' shoulders. It presses down on his soul, their spiritual condition. It, it would be crushing. That, that task is challenging enough with the Lord's full engagement, but it was an inconceivable task. It was an utterly impossible task without the Lord. And so Moses prays, okay, okay, so an angel will go before me. But you know what, what, what I need to know is who will go with me. My job description has not shifted here. It's not changed. Bring up the people, you say. But you, can, you can't tell me, bring up the people and then back out on me. You've said, I know you by name. You found favor in my sight. Look, this doesn't feel like favor. Is that how you treat your friends? Just parenthesis here. Remember, they're talking like friends. <laughs> I have a friend who said to me a couple months ago, if I find out you are, you're still not taking a day off, I'm going to come down there and clean your clock. That's how friends talk. <laughs> do, do you see how many times Moses uses the word favor? Or you said. I'm just asking you, God. I'm just asking you to act consistently with what you've said. So... If I've found favor, like you said I've found favor, and if you have promised 
favor. And if I'm the object of your favor, your undeserved love, your unconditional election, your saving grace, then come on, show me your ways. That's a pretty amazing thing to come from Moses' mouth. This, that is, <laughs> that's audacious. If there ever was a man familiar with God and God's power and God's ways and God's will and how God operates, Moses would be at the top of the list. And then the Lord, Moses' close personal friend, answers in verse 14. And he said, God said, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. Okay, relief. Talk about an upgrade from an angel. But but Moses is not done here. He's paying attention to, you know, we all got to do that these days. He's paying attention to the pronouns. He heard God say, you singular, not you, plural. He heard God say that he would go with Moses and that he would help Moses and he would alleviate the weight of all of that from Moses, but clearly the relationship between God and the people has not yet been repaired and restored. And so we come to verses 15 and 16. And Moses said to God, If your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For for how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not your going with us so that we are distinct, I and and your people from every other people on the face of the earth. You see, Moses appeals for God's presence to accompany, not him alone, but the Israelites as well. And and unless God agrees to go up with them, then neither Moses nor the Israelites are interested in going anywhere. Moses isn't, This is amazing. Moses isn't satisfied with the promise of safe passage to the promised land. He isn't satisfied with the promise of of the elimination of all their enemies. Moses is not satisfied with the promise that he's going to enjoy all the abundance that awaited them in, in this land. All that milk and all that honey. Moses is not satisfied with Safety, deliverance from every enemy, milk and honey, and provision for millions. If it doesn't include a relationship with God himself and the experience of the active and dynamic presence of God himself. If they don't have that, Moses is not interested. Forget the journey. Forget all the land. Forget the victories. Forget the rich abundance. Forget all the good stuff. If God is not in it, if God is not actively and dynamically present, if God is not glorified in all of it, through all of it, by all of it, 
then chuck it. That's the, audit. That's the disposition that all God's people should have. God above all. It's so important. Notice, notice Moses' request. It, it, it confirms the solidarity of his relationship with the Israelites as their mediator. It's all about us. I and your people. And, and notice that every request Moses makes is based on it's based on God's undeserved favor. Mo Moses knows perfectly well that he can't appeal to God on the basis of anything in the Israelites. They've committed scandalous sin. They are a stiff-necked people. And so Moses, the mediator, this is really significant. Moses, the mediator, he leverages his own favor with the Lord in order to repair and restore Israel's relationship with the Lord. Does that not sound like a greater mediator that we've heard about? That we worship? Moses understands that God's active and dynamic presence, that's the very thing that makes the Israelites unique. Acquiring this piece of land or property, it's not what sets them apart or means that they've arrived. That, that's, it's not that big of a thing. <laughs> no, their distinctiveness came from nothing within themselves. Their distinctiveness came from nothing that they had obtained their distinctiveness came from God himself alone. That's all that matters. God with them, active with them, dwelling with them. It's their relationship with God. It's his active and dynamic presence with them. It's, it's his dwelling among them. Loved ones, that's the only thing. That's the only thing they had going for them. And listen, it's, it's the only thing that we've got going for us. God's active and dynamic presence is the only thing that distinguishes us as special from any other gathering going on in this city. It's the only thing that distinguishes us as special from any other people, any other group on the face of the earth. And to this audacious request, God, he, he graciously responds in verse 17, and the Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken, I will do. For you have found favor in my sight, and I I know you by name. I mean, if there's anything that should encourage people whose spiritual nature is about as durable as grass, 
this display of God's mercy, this, this agreement to renew his covenant promises to Israel, despite their sin, <laughs> it is nothing less than extraordinary. The, the Lord is going to accompany Moses and the people to the promised land. Oh, but Moses, he's not done yet with his friend. In verse 18, Moses makes the most audacious request of all. Please, show me your glory. Now, I think it's important for us to understand that this, this request, it's not merely an expression of Moses' personal desire to go deeper in his relationship with God. That, that, that would be commendable, but it, <laughs> it's way more than that. It, I mean, if anybody knows God, uh, if anybody has seen God's glory, well, it's Moses. This is not, this is not an ordinary garden variety devotional time in the daily life of Moses. This is prayer. This is the way we have to understand this. This is prayer in the midst of a crisis. This is prayer in the midst of God's judgment. This is prayer in light of God's command to depart and lead the stiff-necked people to the promised land. This request cannot be rightly understood apart from the context in which it is expressed. And so, loved ones, what Moses wants, what Moses wants in light of this unbelievably awesome news, the stunning reversal, this kind of a restart, he wants assurance. I need to know. I, I, I need to really, I need to really, 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 really know that the promise that you have just made to renew the covenant with Israel, to give this people a do-over, the promise that you just made to be personally, dynamically, discernibly present with us. I need something in light of the great sin that these people have committed, in light of the, in light of the broken tablets laying all over the ground, in light of God's painful declaration that he would not be going with them to the promised land. Moses, he wants some assurance, some special assurance from God confirming that that what he just said to Moses in verse 17 was, was really true. This very thing you have spoken, I will do. What one commentator says, this is like Moses asking God to put it in writing. In other words, Moses isn't looking for, you know, show me your glory, like some personal little jolt of joy and wonder. Oh. No, this is, this, is, this is a significant moment in redemptive history. John Piper writes, This request to see God's glory should be understood in this context as a desire to have God confirm His astonishing willingness to show His favor to a stiff-necked and idolatrous people. So, so how can Moses know? I think this is the thing, right, for us. It, how can we know? How can we know that God won't consume us? 
because of our ongoing sin? How can we know that God won't consume us, people whom he has saved, people whom he has made, him, made his own after we repeatedly and, and like inconceivably turn away from him, away from his rich and extraordinary promises to empty promises, kind of deceitful promises held out to us by our respective idolatrous desires. How? How can we know? What's the sign? How can we know the glory of God's character from which we can be sure, absolutely sure, really know, really, really, really know that he will act in mercy toward Christians like you and me who continue to sin? Show me. Please, show me your glory. Give me a sign confirming the promise that you just made to me. Because before I take another step toward the promised land, I need you to confirm the promise you just made that you're going to go with us. And the Lord immediately answers. Verse 19. I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. This is, this is really significant. We, we, we can't miss this. What God is about to do, what God's about to do is proclaim his name, the Lord, again. The, the, the first time he did this was back in Exodus chapter 3 when he first proclaimed his name to Moses in the midst of the burning bush and he was commissioning, calling Moses to this great task. It's him. It's, it's that God who once again is about to reveal himself to Moses and he's going to do it in a way that exceeds anything that Moses had previously experienced. He's going to do it so that Moses might be fully assured of his call his own call, and, and assure that the covenant has truly been restored and assure that God would actually truly go with them and that God, assure him that God would actually dwell with them in the promised land. That, that's what God's about to do. He's about to give Moses a sign that he's willing to start over again. The glory of God, it is expressed in his goodness. And the goodness of God passing before Moses is going to be a sign assuring Moses that that covenant between God and his people is restored. You want a sign that I'm willing to start over again with this people? Here it is. Here is the sign I'm willing to start over again with this people. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. I am the Lord. That one sentence, that's the entire message of the book of Exodus in a nutshell. That sentence is a summary of what God had done in rescuing the Israelites from Egyptian slavery. It's a summary of what God is doing in renewing his covenant with them in the aftermath of their Unbelievable sin, it is, it's mercy. It's all mercy. Mercy toward the undeserving and the ill-deserving. And so just when God's covenant, just at that point when God's covenant seems to be irreparably broken, 
God is going to show his mercy again. Moses asks for assurance of God's favor, and what a display of God's favor it will be. (laughs) A display of God's favor, bigger than the burning bush, bigger than the plagues, bigger than the parting of the Red Sea, bigger than the pillar of cloud and fire, bigger than the provision of manna and birds, you know, game this time of the year, It's it's a big thing. It's bigger than all of that. The, the, the revelation of God's glory will be greater and higher than any previous display of God's glory. But here's the thing in verse 20. You can't see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there, there, there's a place by me where you shall stand on the rock, and while my glory passes by, I, I will put you, I'll put you in the cleft of the rock, and I'll cover you, with my hand until I pass by. And then I'll take away my hand and you'll see my back. But my face, you shall not, it shall not be seen. Such mercy. I'm just going to end with this word of application. Brief word. Two words. Here's what we can be assured of today. If the Lord was merciful to the idolatrous Israelites, then he will be no less merciful to us. The Lord God does not change. If them, then also us. Our story is no different. Loved ones, you you can start over. You can start over with the Lord again today because we've been given an even greater sign of God's glorious goodness and we've been given an even greater assurance of God's nearness for we have been given Christ and Christ crucified. Jesus is the better mediator. Jesus is the one who has favor, infinite, deserving favor in God's sight. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. In him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, making peace by the blood of his cross. And so it's by him and through him that you and I can start over again. Let's pray. Father in heaven, for for anyone here today who is in a place where, well, they just need to start over with you. And because they've been there so many times before, uncertain, ashamed, fearful, cautious, distrustful of themselves. Pray for the revelation of your glory and the glory of your goodness and grace and mercy that you have communicated in the person and the work of your dearly loved Son, 
our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom, by whom, we have access to you, in whom, by whom, through whom, you mediate your presence to us. And we pray, God, for a display of your active and dynamic presence through the working of your Holy Spirit as we draw near to you even now by faith. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together.